EPC Power manufactures self-developed energy storage smart inverters made in their American factories with gigawatt-level capacity. EPC Power is headquartered in San Diego County, California, and recently opened an engineering and sales location in Helsinki, Finland, to support the growing global demand. Visit epcpower.com energygang to learn more about the utility scale and CLI product lines, and schedule a call to learn how they can help you power your energy storage projects. EPC Power. Excellence in power conversion. Hello, and welcome to The Energy Gang. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the current energy crisis. What does the immediate crisis mean for the transition to low-carbon energy? I'm Ed Crooks, and I'm joined today by Melissa Lott from Columbia University's Centre on Global Energy Policy. Hello, Melissa. Welcome back. How have you been? Hey, Ed. I've been good. Um, I was in New York last week at our offices at the Centre on Global Energy Policy, and it was wonderful to see my colleagues in person. I... It's like you have feet. It's not just shoulders and head above in the Zoom window. Um, it was really great to be back in the city. It's a great spot. It was also surreal to be back in a plane for the first time in two years. So that was a bit of an odd feeling. Yeah, it's so nice. I do agree. It's so great to be seeing people in person. Not so mm -hmm. great to be back on airplanes again. I agree with that. But yeah, really agree with that. And also, it's my pleasure to welcome back Amy Dufour, who's a co-founder and general partner of Azola Ventures, which is a climate-focused venture capital fund. So Amy, you were on the show last year. I think it must be uh, almost a year ago right now. It's, it's been too long. What have you been doing since you were last here? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me again. It's been busy since I was on the show a year ago. We launched our second investment vehicle called Zola Ventures. It's the successor fund to Prime Impact Fund. So it's a different name, but the same investment team and investment strategy. So Azola invests in early stage technology companies with the potential for gigaton scale climate impact. We typically invest in pre-seed, seed, and Series A rounds, and our fund combines structurally patient catalytic capital with more conventional venture capital. So we're using our capital to de-risk early stage climate technologies for follow-on investors. We've made two investments. We're also doubling our team size. So I've been pretty busy, but it's been the best type of busy. Yeah, it does sound fantastic. It's great to have been able to start new things and to do stuff even during the pandemic. I'm always very impressed by people that have actually managed to start businesses, keep things going when things have been so difficult. So thank you both very much for joining us today. So as I said, we're going to be talking about the energy crisis. Melissa, what are your kind of thoughts on this? What are you going to be wanting to talk about on this show? I mean, honestly, that's going to be the hardest part, picking what to focus on, because this crisis is huge. It's affecting different parts of the world in different ways. It's affecting our energy markets quite substantially. So I think we're just going to be in a tough spot for time. I, I think we're going to run out of time on what we're going to focus in on. One of the things I am thinking a lot about is how this is all going to affect the energy transition, though. Does this slow things down, speed things up? So I bet we'll go into that if I had to guess in terms of the discussion. And Amy, what about you? What are the key things you want to talk about? Honestly, I'm excited to talk about all of it, really thinking about the energy crisis in multifaceted ways, whether it's a crisis related to security or policy or innovation or equity. I think it's going to be amazing to talk through all of these elements. And like Melissa said, well, as much as we can get to in an hour. So I've been calling it a crisis. I think that's fair, isn't it? I've seen some people say things like, well, maybe it's not a crisis yet. Perhaps we're kind of on the verge of a crisis. If you look at things like where oil prices are, they're not as bad now and not as high now as they were in the summer of 2008, for instance. I don't know, Melissa, what's your view on that? Crisis is a fair word to use? 
So I think we can debate if crisis is the exact right word. I personally think we can call this a crisis, though we should acknowledge within that that this crisis is playing out quite differently in different parts of the world. So there's the obvious and more local impacts. We focus a lot on Europe, you know, basically the neighboring countries that are tied to Russia and Ukraine by a pipeline or other. But then there's the impacts in other parts of the global energy market. I'm thinking about President Biden's announcement um, with release from the SPR. I'm thinking about the effects in Latin America. I mean, there's just a lot going on. So I think we can call it a crisis, but it's not a single crisis. It's got a lot of different facets to it. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And as you say, it's very, very clearly a crisis in Europe where prices in particular for for gas and for coal have absolutely rocketed. As you say, they're tied very closely to Russia in that way. So it's particularly bad for them. And then, as you say, sort of uh, knockout effects all around the world in, in various different ways. One of the things I think is going to be really important to keep an eye on, which is sort of bubbling under at the moment. And in a sense, like is a, I suppose you could say it's beyond the scope of this podcast, but I think is going to become really important is the food question. Absolutely. Um, Russia and Ukraine, both huge grain producers, also producers of fertilizer and natural gas, of course, which is used to make fertilizer. That's something that feels like that could have enormous global ramifications over the months and years to come. I feel like this crisis is highlighting how connected the world is with its energy. The effects on the energy markets affect everything. It is not isolated to just, you know, the fuel I put in my car. It's hitting across the board. And those impacts, I think we're only starting to feel them now. I think that they will only grow from here. And yet, of course, the immediate crisis is not the only problem we face. We had a reminder of that just this week from the IPCC, the latest working group report from the sixth assessment, which is looking at mitigation and ways of avoiding the worst impacts of climate change. Basically, the message from that report is, although the world has made a large amount of progress in tackling the climate threat, and they had this quote, without immediate and deep emissions reductions across all sectors, limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees C is beyond reach. It's a reminder that while we're focusing on some very short-term problems of energy security, affordability, that longer-term problem of climate change is very much still with us. And obviously, some of the things we might want to do to address the immediate crisis, uh, perhaps boosting supplies of fossil fuels to ease problems of energy security and affordability. For instance, you were just mentioning the US and the US response. The US is talking about releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to drive down oil prices. If the US is talking about building more export facilities for liquefied natural gas so it can sell more gas to Europe to replace Russian imports to reduce Europe's reliance on Russia. And what do you think about that, Melissa? Is that, how much of a risk do you think that is? And is that something, is is this kind of a danger we're already falling into? Are, Are we already starting to damage the effort to tackle climate change with the kind of things we're doing to address the immediate energy crisis? I mean, I think there's a lot of angles that we could talk through on this. I'll focus in on, let's say, two. One is the fact that when we do an energy transition and when we talk about if 1.5 degrees is even remotely within reach, we're talking about cumulative emissions. So if we start, and I think all signs point towards us using more coal this year, that's eating up our carbon budgets. So you spent it. The money's gone. It's not in your bank account. It's gone. Um, You're not getting it back. So that's one thing we have to think about. The other one is, are the investments that we're going to make to respond to the security, energy security issues, going to actually 
be ready to help us get to net zero or would there be things that hinder us? So you could think about different ways that we can build out pipelines and LNG plants that could actually be transition ready and that could help us in the longer term. There's some impacts that I think will be really interesting to see in terms of those investments, what they do to the long-term trajectory of things. But there's both of those facets we need to think about. So the cumulative emissions, which I think are going to be hurt this year, and then how we're investing in our infrastructure to respond to security. At the highest level, though, Ed, and I'm curious, Amy, what you think about this, when it comes to what's going on right now, I think it's highlighting the fact that we need to consider energy security as we're having this transition, and we need to consider energy security all the time. So you can't say, you know what, I'm focused on net zero and short-term security doesn't matter. Actually not focusing on it could undermine all the progress we're trying to make. Melissa, I completely agree with you. I think that people are starting to frame this conflict in terms of a trade-off between energy security and achieving our deep decarbonization goals, which I think is the wrong way uh, to think about it. And, and when you say people, that was, I think, exactly what I just did. So, <laughs> but you think, I mean, you think that's the wrong way to think about it. Anyway, that, to try, you, you, I'm just saying. <laughs> we were, it's all right. I'm not, I'm not taking it personally. But no, but go on. Anyway, I, I interrupted. Amy was being very polite, Ed, but she was. You, she was yeah, being very exactly, polite exactly. and very kind. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, but this is the thing. It's, is it a false dichotomy? Is that what we're saying? I mean, we're setting it up as if these things are in tension with each other, but actually they need to work together. I think, Amy, that's what you're saying, right? Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. I think we really need to think about parallelizing these pieces. I mean, Melissa, you mentioned about, look, maybe in the short term, we're going to ramp up some of our emissions because of our reliance on coal or other fossil fuels. But at the same time, we need to be pummeling investment into these longer term clean energy and climate technologies. I think it's also important when we think about these you know, two pieces is that they operate at different timescales. I mean, we have to think about how quickly we can cut off European demand for coal or oil or gas imported from Russia. But we also need to consider the development of new industries or sectors that can accelerate clean energy adoption. We should think about how we can make it easier as well on other dimensions. So how can we make it easier for permitting for renewables, which can sometimes end up being a barrier for faster adoption? So even though the kind of war in Ukraine you know, may increase um, these global emissions in the short term, I, my main concern is that I don't want us to deprioritize focusing on decarbonization because our timeline to achieve net zero is already super tight and we're going to need all of our efforts really focused on both elements, especially when we think about the clean energy transition, because it is going to require investment in new technologies. Like let's think about, you know, energy storage. And so I just want to make sure that our climate goals aren't going to be deprioritized. And I believe that, you know, paralyzing and also not Framing it as a dichotomy, kind of, as you mentioned, Melissa, will be helpful from that regard. Ed, I've actually got a question for you in response to what Amy just said. So you had mentioned President Biden's announcement about releasing, I think it was 180 million barrels over six months from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is the biggest release in SBR history. This is not a small deal. And then there was the announcement last Friday from all the IA member countries. How do you think this tension resolves or do you think it does? Like, How do you think this plays out? Well, I think Amy is absolutely right. And I think that's the really interesting kind of opportunity, if you like, here, which is to say, how can you actually use this crisis, if you like? It always sounds kind of cynical and devious to talk about 
looking for the you know, the benefits of a crisis, making use of a crisis. But there is something that I think does create an opportunity for making progress on investment in low carbon energy. As you said, Amy, I think that's a really great point about the sort of regulatory and legal barriers to investment, the kind of things that obstruct investments getting made. And just to be able to say, look, this is something we really need to get on with. There are investments that need to be made, which will both help address climate change and improve energy security at the same time. Let's go ahead and do those. So all of that stuff, I think is absolutely right. And I think that's one kind of silver lining in this very difficult and dark situation in general that we're facing at the moment. The issue with the SPR release, it seems like a really good example of this, is something that is saying, hey, there is a problem with gasoline prices being too high. People, particularly in America, because of the way America is a car-dependent society, everybody has to drive here, people cannot cope with gasoline prices at the level that they're at. And the argument that says, well, you know, eventually everyone's going to have an EV and so we won't need to worry about gasoline prices, that's fine as a long-term issue, doesn't help in the short term at all. And in fact, it's one of those things where, as you say, in terms of a sort of the public backlash against the energy transition and against climate policy, if you say to people, hey, don't worry, you can't pay for gasoline, go out and spend $40,000 on an EV. That's the kind of messaging that uh, really puts people's backs up, I think, and and gets people very angry. And so you do have to have these kind of short-term expedients. And that is, I think, the issue that is really difficult in all this. Yeah, I mean, I think it also highlights just how important it is to think about how this transition affects people and how a smoother transition, a thought-out transition, a transition that includes a lot of different technologies um, being able to be utilized in a lot of different ways, you keep prices down. And that's what we see in the analysis again and again and again, where if you focus in on just one set of technologies or only allow yourself to have one set of solutions that you're including and bringing to the table, you end up seeing prices go up. It ends up being a challenge. I mean, and I know, Amy, you think about this kind of stuff, about how we move these companies all the time. So it's, you know, how do we get them on the, to the table so that they can help with the overall transition and keep costs down over it all? Just highlights that question again for me. Yeah, and I think when you were talking about different types of technologies, not only just focusing on one, I think that's super important. I mean, I mentioned energy storage beforehand. I know that, you know, the Italian utility Enel has been apparently thinking about building uh, more battery storage sites. There's going to need to be more investment in wind and solar. I think there's also going to be an increased attention on baseload renewables like geothermal and nuclear. And aside from that, I think energy efficiency will also become really critical. So when we think of software applications for building and the like, I think that's going to come much more to the forefront. So we need a focus and an investment on all of these. We shouldn't just be putting our kind of carts behind one horse. And do you think in terms of the policy debate, Amy, I'm interested in your thoughts on that conversation, as you say, rejecting that sort of dichotomy that people are setting up, that I was setting up earlier about security versus climate. How optimistic are you? How positive would you be about the prospects that we will be able to make progress? And by we, I guess I mean the US, but also the world more generally. Do you think policymakers are going to kind of see that there are these opportunities for these win-win type of investments that, as I say, help with both security, energy security, and addressing the climate threat at the same time? I would consider myself an optimist. I wouldn't be a climate investor knowing all of the things that I do if, if I wasn't, um, while still understanding the really stark realities of the situation. 
I do think there's an incredible momentum that's been building within the climate space, not only from corporates, from consumers, from broader government. And I think that's really going to push these pieces forward. You know, I would also say this, you didn't necessarily ask me this question, but I do think this is such a tricky situation. And when I think about myself as a climate investor who's deeply committed to large-scale climate impact, I do think that there can be a consideration of some of these transitional activities when we think about the broader clean energy transition. As long as they're clearly bounded, they need to have a certain time limit or dollar amount or other requirements that may limit the kind of amount of new infrastructure that's being built. I think that can help balance out some of the short-term consequences with the longer-term solutions uh, to the climate crisis. I know it's not always a popular, you know, thought, but I think it's a real one, at least, you know, for me. So, so give me some examples of that. Then you mean, for instance, it might be fine to actually boost U.S. oil production or U.S. natural gas production in the short term over the next few years to kind of get us over this hump we've got in terms of the pain people are facing from high prices. It might be okay to boost production to address that while maintaining that longer term focus on climate and emissions reduction. Is that your point? Broadly speaking, although I wouldn't right now put an explicit, um, I, I, I don't you know, feel as well equipped to say it needs to be for X amount of time, but I do think there should be a time bound. When I think about you know, LNG, you know, my main worry is that new gas pipelines and terminals are being built. And so you know, once that happens, it's going to be really hard to slow down global warming. And so the question becomes around what infrastructure is needed, but that could also lock in problems related to increased greenhouse gas emissions. And what are the tools that policymakers and others in the broader space uh, can use to kind of hamper or slow down some of those negative impacts? So, Melissa, that's something I wanted to ask you about, because I think that's a really interesting point. And you think, well, for the next 10 years, let's say, there's a need for increased flows of US gas into Europe. Therefore, we need more LNG export facilities um, from the US. Got to invest in those. There's no way around that. But then beyond that, Europe will have alternatives. It'll be using hydrogen or whatever it might be. But you build an LNG facility that's got an economic working life of 40 years. No one's, if you uh, build those now, no one's going to want to retire those in 10 years' time. So how do you manage that? And you used an expression earlier on, Melissa, you talked about, I think, was it transition-ready infrastructure? Was that the phrase you used? Or transition-prepared? Or, or you know, infrastructure that is in some sense kind of aligned with the transition, even if it's not actually low-carbon right now. So, but anyway, I mean, what, what kind of things are you talking about? Yeah, so if I think through that a bit, um, well, one thing I'd highlight is actually an article that came out that was written by Jason Bordoff at our center, along with Megan O'Sullivan, who's on our board and also is part of Harvard University, of course, really talking about this tension that we're highlighting right now. And the quote from that that I just have started using again and again, because again, I think it sums it up, is that if energy security and climate ambition come into conflict with one another, it's the climate that's going to lose out. So the question is, what do we do to help in that process? So the first thing that they highlight in that article, which I think is spot on, is a need to really double down on the transition. But the second thing is what you're highlighting here, Ed, and it's something we're discussing at the center every day, which is how do we invest in enough of these hydrocarbon infrastructure needs to meet today's energy needs? So to keep the lights on, to keep our cars running, to keep our economies going, while also minimizing 
what's kind of left behind in those investments that can't be transitioned. So ideally designing them so that they can help us in the future. So this could be an example of a pipeline. Um, you know, I know in Europe, what is it? Uh, we've got the announcements about Germany abandoning Nord Stream 2. And the idea is, okay, if you're going to be building out more LNG infrastructure, more pipeline infrastructure in other places, how can you do it in such a way that it's ready to go for zero carbon gases that we see being used so consistently in these future energy transition 2050 scenarios? So when I say zero carbon gases, people often focus in on just hydrogen, but I'm saying, no, I mean, what does this do for synthetic methane, renewable natural gas, the things that we're creating now that haven't actually hit yet, that will hit in the next few decades? And so I think the real argument is, or discussion is how do we minimize the impacts of this infrastructure in terms of its ability to slow us down as we go to net zero? How do we make sure that it is more than not ready to go as we move forward? That's really the question. And does that mean then you would take very conscious decisions about which infrastructure projects you would allow to go ahead and which you wouldn't? I I think this is a walk and chew gum and a creativity moment. That's what I think, which is an idea of we need to look at projects that are being proposed, not just in terms of what they're going to do for us in the next couple of years, if they come online in 18 months or two years or whatever the timeline is, depending on the scale of the project, but are they in line with our long-term ambitions? And at times, if we have to make a decision where energy security is winning out, and this could actually be a challenge for climate, that's where creativity comes in. I mean, what should we be thinking about in terms of government's roles in energy infrastructure? How do we say, you know what, we need this stuff now, but we aren't wanting to keep it for the normal lifetime that a company would invest in. What is the role of government in that? What is the role of policy in that? So that we can do both of these things. And that's something that the conversations need to blend together and they need to be part of the same conversation. They don't need to be kind of in two different rooms at two different times. We need to be thinking about them at the same time. Melissa, I'd like to jump in with just um, one other thought on the, the point of creativity. So I think it's not only the government that can play a role when we're thinking about how to minimize some of these impacts, public-private partnerships, also the role of philanthropy that can be used um, to financially support some of these kind of transition-friendly assets, as you've mentioned. I think those are all areas that we can explore. When we think about the amount of capital that's sitting in the U.S. kind of family office and foundation space alone, which oftentimes can be more structurally patient and flexible capital to support kind of mission-driven areas. I think this could be another area that we could call on that community to, to say, hey, let's see how we can support kind of this unique issue within the broader climate crisis and energy crisis. That's really interesting, Amy. Um, you seeing attitudes starting to change already then? Are uh, philanthropic investors, other investors that are interested in climate starting to actually change their attitudes? And, and how do you think, think about that as an investor yourself? Are you looking at potential investments in a slightly different way and thinking, well, if this could be kind of transition ready, if there's something maybe which is higher carbon now, but could be lower carbon in the future, this is something we might be prepared to invest in. Are your attitudes changing there? It's a really interesting question. I would say that the philanthropic community, which we work quite deeply with at Azola Ventures, is starting to ask the questions. It's not necessarily investing in companies or nonprofits in the same climate verticals that have been seen before. And I really applaud that community because there is a lot of creativity and innovation that happens primarily because they have the flexibility in terms of the, the types of capital that's, that's being used. When we think about other crises that have happened, you know, not even necessarily relating to um, the energy crisis, uh, but when I think about the you know, protests against 
you know, police brutality about a year and a half ago, there were a lot of philanthropic funders who then started asking the funds that they were investing in, you're looking at, you know, climate change, but what about this from an equity lens? So I think that that uh, move is going to start coming. That's that's where I, I see it in terms of this really kind of transition friendly piece. Your second part of your question, Ed, was around, have we changed our outlook in terms of what we're investing in? I would say that at Azola, because we invest in early stage technology companies that have large scale climate impact, that deep climate impact hasn't changed. We've always invested in a lot of different types of technologies that are very critical for decarbonization. But I do think the broader universe of investors who may be less explicitly climate focused, that is changing. So perhaps, you know, two or three years ago, it would have you would have been less likely to see somebody invest in a long duration energy storage company. But over the past you know, six months or so that that's become more important because people realize that we need to have the ability to be able to store intermittent renewables for on-demand power. So again, it's a little bit of push and pull in, in the broader space, but my hope and my belief is that you know people will respond to world events and will start thinking more creatively and differently in terms of their solutions and deploying capital. EPC Power manufactures self-developed energy storage smart inverters made in their American factories with gigawatt-level capacity. These inverters have industry-leading response time, advanced control features, and grid-forming capabilities. EPC is headquartered in San Diego County, California. To support growing global demand, they recently opened an engineering and sales branch in Helsinki, Finland, and are launching an East Coast factory this year. EPC Power is expanding its presence as the largest US grid-scale inverter manufacturer, delivering over a gigawatt of energy storage inverters to date, and over 2 gigawatts by the end of this year. Visit www.epcpower.com energygang to learn more about their utility scale and CNI product lines, and schedule a call to learn how they can help you power your energy storage projects. EPC Power. Excellence in power conversion. Yeah, which brings me to something we were uh, talking earlier before we were recording, and I thought a really interesting point, sort of drawing an analogy between the war in Ukraine and climate change. And as you're saying, when we see the terrible pictures out of Ukraine, read the stories, hear about this appalling humanitarian disaster that has been inflicted on that country. And you were saying there's a parallel there with the way we should think about climate change. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I think there are a lot of overlaps between the humanitarian crises that are caused by war and climate change. And that could range from involuntary migration to water shortages, to lack of energy access, to food insecurity, which you highlighted a bit earlier. And so I know you said it wasn't the scope, but I do want to focus on food insecurity just for a second, because I think that that's helpful to also illustrate the intersection with the climate space. So you know, Ukraine is a massive wheat exporter. It's the fourth largest supplier of wheat and corn in the world and contributes to over 10% of the world's wheat exports and 16% of the world's corn exports. Food prices have soared crazy to their highest levels um, since 2010. And that's across a number of different areas, supply chain disruptions, rising energy and input prices, extreme weather, a lot of ports have been shut up as a result of the war. Ukraine's land infrastructure is being damaged. 
So prices are going up for everyone. And some of the regions that are going to be most affected by the war in Ukraine are going to be the Middle East and African nations who actually account for almost 40% of Ukraine's exports. So you think about that on one side. And then on the other side, let's talk about Russia. You know, Russia is a huge exporter of fertilizer and the world right now needs fertilizer to feed the global population. And so sky high fertilizer prices have had farmers worldwide scaling back their use. Then let's talk about Western sanctions on Russia that are disrupting shipments for key inputs. And fertilizer is very key to keeping these yields high. And a lot of farmers are trying to figure out how to adjust. And the issue is more acute in developing nations whose farmers have fewer financial resources to weather the storm. So that's all on the kind of Ukraine and Russia side. But now let's think about the climate crisis, because fertilizer is a very interesting facet of the climate crisis. Agriculture accounts for over a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. Crop production, when you think about food emissions, accounts for around 27 percent. And this is really due to the release of nitrous oxide from the application of fertilizers. Also think methane emissions from rice production or carbon dioxide from agricultural machinery. But fertilizer is a really big issue. Around 3% of all greenhouse gas emissions are nitrous oxide emissions that are related to synthetic-based nitrogen fertilizer, especially ones that are used on industrial-scale farms. And the Haber-Bosch process, which is the main industrial process for fertilizer production, hasn't changed in a century. So this combined with the fact that it takes more and more fertilizer to achieve similar growth over time, and only a fraction of the synthetic fertilizers that are applied to fields are converted to foods with the rest running off into water bodies or polluting farmers' fields, meaning there's less you know, food to go around. It just highlights how, again, climate change is related to food insecurity, as is the geopolitical conflict. And on the climate change side, we have some companies that are focusing on zero carbon fertilizer production, but we desperately need more solutions if we're going to be able to feed the world in a sustainable and scalable way. And so I think this is really what I meant by humanitarian issues resulting from war and climate change intersecting, that the same crises can result in the same problems. That is a great point. And going back to that thought about whether there's a tension between tackling the immediate crisis and the longer term issue of climate change. If you don't tackle the longer term issue of climate change, then you set yourself up for many, many more of these immediate crises in different parts of the world in maybe somewhat different ways, but in fundamentally similar ways, again and again, getting worse and worse into the future. So I guess it's, a, as you say, a reminder of why we care about emissions, why it's worth addressing this issue at all, is that climate change creates those conditions for those future crises to, to hit us. And we're seeing just how devastating those can be. Absolutely. Everything is interconnected. And so, Melissa, we were just talking about the SPR release and the Biden administration trying to drive down cost of gasoline by releasing more oil onto the market. There's also been a lot of these ideas rumbling around for gasoline tax cuts, rebates, and so on. Um, do you think these make sense? Is it justifiable at the moment to cut gasoline taxes because prices are so high? I think the reality is that right now we have very few tools available to us to help in the short term. And energy burden is real. I mean, you already have overall, when you look at not just gasoline, but also power, all your utility bills, 
I mean, you've got one in three Americans who are currently energy insecure. That includes those people paying six to 10% of their income or more on these bills and people who don't actually keep their homes healthy and who have limited economic opportunities because they're like, well, I, I can't pay that bill. So I'm not even going to get started. I'm not going to turn the AC on, these types of things. If we zoom in specifically on gasoline, I mean, what can we do at this point? There's a couple of different options and you're seeing those play out. So you're seeing these plans for, you know, rebates in California for car owners, Chicago's prepaid gas cards, um, representatives Thompson, Larson, and Underwood, they've introduced that gas rebate bill. There's a lot going on and it just highlights though that there's not that many tools available to us. So we can give people money or we can reduce taxes, both of which help to bring costs down a little bit. <sighs> I'm not gonna say, are they good? Are they bad? I mean, they're the tools we have available to us. But what they highlight is that overall, we have an energy insecurity challenge already in this country, also around the world. And we need to be addressing that and thinking about it at the core of what we're doing when we talk about an energy transition. I think that's right. I think one of the things I do think is that giving people money in general is a better thing to do than cutting taxes on gasoline. When prices go up, they go up for a reason, which is that the market is tight. Um, there isn't enough uh, supply to meet demand. That's a price signal, which is telling you something about the oil market. And in general, I think it's not a great idea to blunt those price signals. And I think that actually, when we're thinking about people over time, moving away from oil, using EVs, maybe using public transport more, maybe using bikes, electric bikes, whatever it might be, you actually want that price signal to be there to encourage people to do all those things. Now, that said, as you've been saying, energy, hardship, poverty is real, and you need to do something about that. But my feeling is, address that directly. If you give people a flat rebate payment that can be spent on anything, that's much better than just giving people a tax cut just on gasoline, or even money that you could be spent just on gasoline, because I bet what happens with a lot of the time there is you actually just end up pushing the price back up again because that's where the spending goes and the money goes to benefit the uh, fuel retailers doesn't actually benefit the people it goes to so i was going to yeah mention you know just one thing i think i liked what you said melissa about how these are the the tools that we have and i agree with you broadly ed in terms of um, the rebates but i do think that we just need to remind ourselves that these higher gas prices are disproportionately hurting people from low-income communities. And so with all of these initiatives, we just need to make sure that the benefit is being spread equitably across the population. So when you think about um, Governor Newsom in California with the rebate for car owners, you know, he also received some criticism um, from people saying that focusing on car ownership is going to be leaving out low-income Californians. And so he also is proposing grants for local bus and rail agencies to offer you know, free transit, which I think is really important because rebate should be targeted at the most vulnerable population. And also, we should not make assumptions that everyone has a car and also think about encouraging public transportation where appropriate. So these are the tools we have, and let's just try and utilize them in the most equitable way. And the point I, to carry on from what you're saying, Amy, on this as well is recognizing that I'll get money back later is not an option for a lot of households. It's like if I don't have the cash in my pocket right now, I can't fill up my tank today, I can't get to work. Like that's a reality for millions of people around this country um, and around the world. So it's one of those things where 
keeping in mind the timeliness of it for different communities, just because, you know, I am lucky enough to be able to absorb a little bit of extra cash going towards that and not have to make a fuel versus food decision means I'm lucky, I'm privileged, and not everyone has that choice. And so keeping that in mind with the tools that we're actually implementing, what are the biggest risks we have for different parts of the population? How do we keep that in the conversation? Yeah, that is a great point. Um, the thing I then wonder about more broadly here is what does this say about the distributional impact of the energy transition and equity issues in the energy transition? As we were saying earlier, if you think that in the long term, the way for people not to have to worry about gasoline prices anymore is if they own EVs or electric bikes or bikes or they use public transport or whatever it might be, that means they don't use a gasoline car anymore. In practice, people who can buy EVs tend to have higher incomes. They can afford to buy them. Same thing with domestic energy bills. It's people who can uh, afford to put solar panels on the roof of their homes. They can afford to buy a storage system. Um, you live in the kind of housing where you've got a roof of your own that you can put solar panels on. Again, tend to be better off people. They're all going to be at the vanguard of this, which means that if these issues with fossil fuel prices, volatility of fossil fuel prices, shortages of fossil fuels are going to be more of an issue in the future, it's going to be those better off people that have been able to make the transition that are better protected from those. And the burden is going to be highest on people and communities on lower incomes. The question, how do you manage that? Is there anything that can be done in order to relieve that? Or is this going to be a real sort of issue and a source of tension for years and decades to come as the energy transition progresses? I mean, I think this is a tension now, and it will continue to be a tension that we need to be aware of. And there's investments that we can make in the longer term to reduce these gaps, to make energy more affordable, to make more accessible. I mean, it's about having mobility. It's having access to get to places, right? It's about being able to keep your home warm in the winter and cold in the summer, you know, so you keep it healthy inside of your home. I think we're seeing this play out, and it goes back to our earlier conversation about security, energy security, so making sure we have the energy we need to keep the economy running and to keep our lives running, while also investing in a healthier future for our energy systems, which is the energy transition, which is moving to zero carbon. So we need to do both. We need to not lose focus on near-term priorities because if we end up having skyrocketing prices, if we end up not keeping the costs during this transition low, we will have a lot of very reasonable, very expected pushback. But in the longer term, you know, moving to a zero carbon energy system is the end goal we need to be focused on. So how do we do both? And we can. And it goes back again to what all the research is saying about keeping a lot of technologies and a lot of options in the mix. Some things will work better in different markets with different communities and, and different places that have different trade-offs and resources. So how do we keep a technology neutral kind of platform available to us that allows a lot of different tools to be in that toolbox so we can use them as we move to net zero? So Amy, what do you think? I think that was beautifully well said. <laughs> um, oh, Melissa, I'm just sitting here and I'm like, yes, yes. No, I really, I really agree with you. I think that was extremely thoughtful. I mean, you know, I I think about more about the equity piece because I am focused more on early stage innovation on kind of that the the latter end of the the spectrum. And there it becomes how are technologies and solutions deployed in communities? Are we considering communities' inputs when we're thinking about designing pieces? Are we, you know, consulting something 
let me use a coastal carbon capture company, you know, for example, like, are we consulting coastal communities as well as thinking about, you know, the ecological impacts? And I think that, at least on the latter half, is something that the climate tech kind of innovation community or energy innovation community is starting to get um, smarter on. I think we have a long, long ways to go, but... And I do believe that dual focus, as you you mentioned, Melissa, is extremely important. And I think that's where the future is going. It's actually one of my favorite tailwinds that I think of in terms of the broader kind of clean energy or climate tech ecosystem is that there has been a much more intentional focus on equity, which I think has been woefully underrepresented or underfocused on in the past. So let's talk a bit more about innovation, which is really the last thing I want to talk about on this episode today. It seems like a lot of the problems we face need applications of new technology. There's a lot of technologies that could potentially help with those dual problems of both cutting emissions and strengthening energy security at the same time. But those technologies are still uh, maybe in the lab or they're perhaps at the, the pilot or the demonstration stage. And they really need to be rolled out on a very large scale. So, Amy, you were saying earlier, uh, Azola invest in those technologies for deep decarbonization. You said you've invested in a couple of companies already. Can you tell us a bit about those? Where have you been placing your bets? Yes. So we actually invest very early at Azola Ventures. So, you know, we typically will go places where other investors won't. So we're not afraid of going into university labs. The predecessor fund to Azola Ventures called Prime Impact Fund made 16 investments. And some of those companies, Ed, are at the pilot um, and very kind of early demonstration stage. But, you know, the majority of our companies are still quite early on in their life cycle. The two companies that we've invested out of Azola Ventures, the first is a high temperature industrial heat pump company called Heaton. Uh, They're based in Norway. So very... Uh, timely as we talk about the broader uh, energy uh, crisis. And then the second company is a battery-focused uh, recycling company called Citration. Earlier on in, in their life cycle, but the the key points there is that we do believe that there requires a large amount of capital across all different stages of a company's life cycle. And there's been much more capital flowing into the broader climate space. I think what's interesting, though, is to your point, actually, there's been more of a kind of a needed gap in terms of patient capital that can support companies first of a kind plant or project. Actually, there's you know quite a big valley of, of, of death there. That's not necessarily where my fund focuses on, but we are noticing as we are supporting technologies and they get to a certain spot, you know, there still becomes another very critical funding gap because people are less likely to, you know, do that first or second plant. They want to do the fifth or the tenth. Yeah, I was going to say, so where does that uh, valley of death uh, really open up then? That's between what you you were saying you're for your first demonstration plant and then large-scale commercial deployment. Is it is that where the real problem is? Well, that's where one of the problems are. I would say the other problem is still early stage around company formation, you know, because people want climate companies or energy companies to have a certain proof points before they're willing to deploy their capital. And so while we have seen an increase in seed rounds in the broader climate space. You know, we do do believe that there's also a very important uh, gap for 
for some of those blue sky technologies as you were you were mentioning. Right, got it. So it feels like uh, climate tech is a very hot area for investing right now. There's been a lot of talk about it. I would say right now probably has been for a few years now. Seems to be a lot of money flowing into the industry, a lot of excitement around it. Certainly a lot of talk about, oh, this is where the next unicorns are going to come from. There are going to be these kind of billion dollar uh, companies in energy of various kinds, low carbon energy, that are really going to break through. Is that how you see it? And I'm interested in, within that kind of general sense of excitement, are there particular sectors that people are really uh, looking at right now or the particular areas that are hot or the areas that, are, that you think are making real progress? It's a really good question. Actually, let me ground us in some statistics on the climate landscape. Climate Tech VC is one of my favorite places uh, to get statistics. And so they reported that climate tech startups raised over $39 billion across 600 venture deals in 2021. So when we compare that to the same period in 2020, investment in the second half of 2021 saw a whopping $23 billion poured into climate tech companies for the last six months of the year, which is pretty remarkable. And when you start to think about specific climate verticals, three climate verticals, so mobility, energy, and food and water accounted for around 90% of total 2021 climate funding. So you can think some of, of some of the kind of billion dollar large rounds for electric vehicle OEMs like Rivian really skewed funding towards mobility in the first half of the year. And then some of the nuclear fusion companies uh, like Commonwealth Fusion Systems, you know, skewed funding in the energy sector. When I think about certain verticals that received a smaller amount of funding in terms of the overall pie, but are increasing. You know, one is carbon. And so that really refers to the management and removal of emitted carbon. And then broader industrial sectors focusing on goods and raw materials. And so even though those two sectors make up less than 5% of the broader climate tech pie, the dollars deployed have actually grown by 10x and 8x respectively from the second half of 2020 to 2021 which outpaced a bunch of other sectors which is really interesting that's that's been a that's been a shift that people are recognizing that we need to decarbonize heavy industry and then i think the last point i'll i'll note on that Ed, is heavy industry is an area that we are especially interested in we think that there have been some untapped areas within the broader climate tech space i'm thinking you know, iron and steel, um, technologies that are looking to decarbon iron and steel or shipping, or even thinking around frontiers of computing. So we think that those are all opportunities uh, for investors in the climate space, especially ones that are looking in maybe neglected areas. Thanks. So Melissa, when you look at all this activity, does it make you optimistic? Do you feel very positive that we are going to get the solutions that we need, given how much uh, money is going into these kind of areas and how many new technologies are kind of bubbling up. I think that I'm encouraged, absolutely, that we're doing so much more than we were before. You can feel the momentum growing, but we need to go a lot faster and a lot further if we're going to keep costs down, if we're going to get to zero carbon on a time frame that, back to the IPCC report, will protect human health and the environment to the degrees that we were hoping to when we set forth the Paris Climate Agreement. So yeah, I'm absolutely encouraged. It's exciting to see all this movement that, you know, was something we talked about in books as being a possibility and discussed. But now, you know, the headlines about clamoring to invest, like that's exciting, but it's not enough yet. 
So my question is like, what can we do to accelerate it and put more money into it? Amy? I'm looking at you, Amy, when I say that. So, what? so I'm looking at you. <laughs> so what, what, what can we do that? Well, I think there are two types of things, actually, more, more that I think about it. I think we need more financing, but I think we also need different types of financing. I think that's really important. I don't think that there's kind of one, you know, type of capital that's going to be most critical. We need more growth capital. We need more early stage, um, you know, venture capital. We need more catalytic capital, which is structurally more patient and flexible capital. We need more first of a kind project finance. We need more, you know, broader um, project finance. It really, it really runs the gamut. You know, there's one needs to be an ability for investors to think about the climate space in a very holistic way and invest in technologies that maybe, you know, they got burned 20 years ago, but is really critical for the deep decarbonization transition. Some of it is about just investor inertia. You know, oftentimes in our space, people kind of go and, and crowd around the same couple of places. I also would actually, you know, encourage, you know, LPs, so the broader investors in investment vehicles uh, to take a more active role and funnel more of their money focused on the climate um, crisis and the energy transition more broadly. We're starting to to see that, but I would like to see it even more because I think that drives then again the focus of often investment funds, which then you know puts their money into companies and kind of and so on and so on. So I guess the cynical view of this would be to say there is a bubble being inflated here that because of all the excitement around climate change as an issue, the energy sector in general, money is flooding into this area. It seem to be quite a few people perhaps who don't have a background in energy who are trying to get into the industry and, and develop things here. Inevitably, companies that perhaps don't really have a sound business proposition are able to get funded now when they wouldn't have been able to a few years back. People, I think, uh, sometimes draw parallels with where we were with clean tech, as it was known then, I guess, in the sort of the 2000s, and then when a bubble inflated and then deflated again. How do you try and avoid some of the dangers in that then, of being, as I say, at that point where it's such a kind of hot sector, so many claims being made, uh, so many people saying they can do great things and save the planet and make billions of dollars in the process. What do you watch out for and look at to be confident, as confident as you can be, that you're actually deploying capital into the right things? I would say for us, we have our own sort of guided investment theses, and we have a lot of technical people at our team that are doing that really necessary diligence across some of the core fundamentals of the technological innovation. So I would say that that's what we are primarily still focusing on the Azola side. On the flip side, though, when so much money was pouring into the climate space, I did get a bit worried, particularly from generalist um, investors. And, you know, let me say that we need more money, we need more capital, we need more heads around the table. So I think it's ultimately a good thing. But I wanted to make sure that people were doing it in a thoughtful manner. One of the things I think has been really encouraging is that many 
at least generalist kind of investors that I've seen have come into the space when they are investing in climate companies, they are thinking about complementary skill sets to form their syndicates. So r- very rarely am I seeing, you know, a, a generalist investors who's had no experience investing, you know, in a climate company across syndicate of other generalist investors. They usually bring somebody in who either has deep climate expertise or, you know, in that uh, particular vertical that they're focusing on. And I think that's very important. That's just a smart strategy in general when you're investing. And if I had seen less of that, I might have been more uh, concerned. But at least, you know, early early kind of innings, um, I, I've seen that dynamic play out, which has been very welcome. Melissa, what do you think? Are you worried that this is a bubble? I'm not worried that it's a bubble. I think that I'm, again, encouraged by the inclusion of people who have deep backgrounds in energy and climate coming into these spaces. I think that we have seen a number of examples where folks entered the space. I, I mean, I'm not going to say I don't know what was going on in their head, but from the outside looking in, it was like underestimating what they were getting into, you know, equating it to something they'd done in the past and saying, oh, well, I created this app. I created the software thing. It worked in this other industry. And I'm like, this is energy. <laughs> like there's, <laughs> this is different. Um, and so I'm encouraged by seeing more people who I respect the heck out of for their energy knowledge, their energy industry knowledge, working with these organizations to help say, okay, so what's the goal? What are the potential solutions given how energy works? Because energy is this public good. It keeps us safe in our homes. It's, it's different. It's different. So I think we do uh, just about have to leave it there. Before we do, just as usual, wanted to collect uh, your free electrons, the particular things you brought in. Um, Melissa, what's yours? So Ed, you know, I really love the team that I work with. Um, but in the past few weeks, so much of what I've been reading, I, this isn't a plug for the center. It's just, it's just truth. I've been reading all the daily stuff we're coming out with. I've got so many different colleagues that have been you know, providing perspective on different announcements, what's happening in different parts of the world. And two things have kind of come to the top of my list here recently. One is a piece by um, Dr. Robert Johnston, uh, who's a researcher with us, and Abhi Rajendran, who is another researcher on, on our team. And they said, OK, what are the consequences of this SPR release that Biden just announced? So you know, really putting it in context with how big a deal it is, what it could do to prices. Um, and I just found it quite fascinating. The other one that really has opened my eyes this week is actually an event that we had about the crisis and the implications for Latin America's, you know, energy transition, the energy sector, all of that. And it included three just complete rock stars that I feel so privileged to work with. Um, Juan Carlos Jobet, who's a distinguished visiting fellow with us, who's the former minister of energy from Chile, if the name sounds familiar. That's where it comes from. Um, Dr. Luisa Palacios, who, in addition to be a full-time scholar now, is the former chairwoman of CITGO in Venezuela. And then Dr. Mauricio Cardenas, who's another visiting researcher with us, who's the former minister of finance and energy for Colombia. And getting those three people to give perspectives on what this all means, I just... I wish there was more time. I wish my brain could have absorbed everything they were saying. It was just fascinating. And I think there's going to be lots of follow-up conversations because we focus on Europe. But as I said earlier, there's just so much going on around the world and the knock-on effects in our global energy markets are massive. So that's where I've been spending a lot of my time lately. No electric Winnebago's this week, a lot about the crisis. <laughs> so That does sound fascinating. Is that conversation available online? Can we find that? It'll be on YouTube. Yeah, they're going to put up the video of it. Um, so Yeah, cool. I'll check it out. Thanks. Amy, what about you? 
Okay, so uh, for my free electron, it's going to touch a little bit on a personal part of my identity. So I grew up in the Philadelphia area, uh, but my family is from Ghana, and I've spent a lot of time there. And so I've been able to see some of these complex dynamics between developed and developing countries in relation to the climate crisis. And so while I'm focused on climate mitigation in my work, given human production and consumption patterns, you know, we need to start thinking about adaptation and resilience. Uh, So my free electron is an announcement from the United Nations and World Meteorological Organization, which is all about spearheading early warning systems for the globe within five years. So a third of the world's people are still not covered by early warning systems. And in Africa, it's even worse. It's over 50 percent. So these are, you know, essentially systems for floods or droughts or heat waves or storms that can let people know that you know, hazardous weather is on its way and it essentially monitors real-time conditions. So I'm going to be watching this development. I think it's super important that people have the same access to resources, especially when we talk about equity as it relates to the energy and climate crisis. Amy, I've got to make a quick comment, which is that when I was in New York, I went to Madison Square Gardens for the first time ever. I saw the Philadelphia Flyers play the New York Rangers. It was, a, it was a slow start if you're a Rangers fan on the game, but then they pulled it back to tie, went into overtime, went into shootout, <laughs> and the Flyers did win. Um, but it was really exciting. So sorry, when you, when you started off your free electron, I just was brought back to the game. I never, yeah, it was a good game. <laughs> like, I was, I was very excited to be there in person for it. Um, for a sports match I've been to in person in years. Which is great to do, isn't it? I love yeah, it. it's nice to be able that to do was that. So good. But if all right, <laughs> if we're talking about sport, you mentioned Ghana. We have to say congratulations to Ghana for uh, qualifying for the World Cup, beating Nigeria. That absolutely thrilling game. So excited doesn't even begin to start. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can't be singing on on the Energy Gang. Let me let me let me no, let me roll back. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's very it. exciting. And, love, and love speaking it. as an Arsenal fan, great to see Thomas Party with the uh, the crucial goal there. That was a fantastic thing to watch. So my free electron, meanwhile, is my, I'm announcing this in this kind of pompous way, my heat pump journey, which is something I've been uh, hearing so much about heat pumps. We have recently moved into a new home. Not, I mean, not new, new, but kind of new to us. And it's got a heat pump which they said, oh, we've got a heat pump. It doesn't work. So we haven't, I mean, it's got gas heating as well. So we've been heating up with the gas. So, you know. But given clearly what are the huge advantages of heat pumps and given uh, the price of gas right now and how uh, crazy that is and, and likely to get worse in the future, it really seems like it's going to be worth either getting this heat pump going or in, if it really can't be fixed, buying a new one. So... That is the um, exciting prospect that I'm thinking about. And I'm imagining many, many uh, weeks and months of content on this show uh, for a long time to come is in following exactly how exciting it is to get a heat pump mended or to get a new one. So watch out for that. Nice. I love how you preface that with my heat pump journey. I was like, oh, I'm very excited to hear more about this. But yeah, good luck finding someone to fix things up. I also will say we have a portfolio company called Gradient, um, which um, has a heat pump that's going to be on the market this summer. So I will send you that note in case this one that you currently have is, is not working. Plug plug for our port co. 
Thanks very much. Who knew this was going to turn into a sales opportunity? Fantastic. Well, unfortunately, we do have to leave it there. Uh, that's all from the Energy Game for this week. But thank you very much indeed, Melissa. Great to see you again. Good to see you too, Ed and Amy. I'm so glad we got to be on the podcast together. It was a lot of fun. It was so much fun. Great conversation. Yeah, Amy, thank you very much indeed for coming in and joining us again. Hope to see you again soon. I had such a fun conversation and this was wonderful. Hope you all have a great week. You too. Thank you very much all for listening. Please do let us know what you think. As usual, give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering, any tips on repairing a heat pump. Uh, we're on Twitter at, at the Energy Gang. I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.